that God uh, permits or allows and receives only that worship which he prescribes in his uh, Bible. And this is opposed for the more theologically minded uh, people. I think the Lutherans hold a principle of worship called the normative principle of worship, which runs something like this. If it's not expressly forbidden, it may be permitted. So you can see the difference. Though, I don't know why I mentioned that. Oh, okay, I do know why. There it is. All right, Acts 20. Worship. I have worship on the brain. That's why I mentioned that. Um, Acts 20. Verse 1. Hear God's word. After the uproar had ceased... Paul sent for the disciples when he exhorted them and taken his leave of them. He left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts, had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby. Timothy and Tychicus and Trompius of Asia, Trompimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and we came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third floor and he was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. When he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten. He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then they left. They took away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, you are God, and beside you there is no other God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mysteries of mysteries, the triune God. And we are your creatures. We are uh, pots, pieces of uh, pottery, Lord, and you are the potter, and we are the sheep of your pasture. And you are our blessed and singular shepherd. And to you, Lord God, we look for not only life, but the continuation of it, physical and spiritual. And pray again that you would be with me, especially this morning as your herald, and all of us, that we would have the requisite measure of faith to hear your word and to be radically conformed and changed by it into the image of Christ. And if there are any who hear this sermon um, who are not converted to you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would condescend Holy Spirit to use it as the means to um, bring another saved sinner uh, home to his uh, heavenly father or her heavenly father. Christ's name. Amen. The book of Acts. So this is my, I'm a series preacher. I'm expository book series preacher. We, my, my general methodology is to pick a book and you just go from chapter one, one, and just plow through the book. And so we're in the book of Acts. This is our 78th sermon. Not quite sure how many more I have to go. My intention is subsequent this. This will be a while to complete the book. 
But my intention is to go through the epistles of John when I finish in the morning um, series. One, two, and three, John. That's my intention. Who's, who's to say? But he, he, here we are. Now, if you've been with us in the, the, the morning sermon series, you'll see that there are regular themes that God the Holy Spirit inspires Luke, who's the human author, uh, to, to write about. And this is what um, one of my, my friends who I mentioned, who's a minister, who's preaching through the book of Acts in the evenings, he's really struggling and he's not liking the book uh, because of the redundancy of the book. And I would argue there, there really is redundancy in the book. And what do I mean by that? It's almost every sermon. Um, I, I don't think it's true. I, I know it's not true for myself because I'm manuscript, which means I write out my sermons. I don't preach what I write, but you get what I write. I think on Tuesday I send it. If you walk through the book of um, Acts, it's essentially the record of God's gospel servants in being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, being moved by the Spirit of Christ within them to carry out the Great Commission of Jesus. The Great Commission is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says to his gospelers, apostolic and extraordinary officers, and then ordinary officers, and then ordinary Christians, Go to the whole world and spread the gospel of Jesus, making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Converts, yes, but disciples, learners of Christ, lovers of Christ, worshipers of Christ, and baptizing them and so on. And what you find in Acts, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is that these gospelers, these servants of Jesus, have been faithful to Christ's commission. They start in Judea. Uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, which the Samaritans, you remember, they're kind of like uh, mixed up hodgepodge Jews. This is where the king of Assyria wanted to corrupt the Jews and destroy their religion. And so he used a practice called syncretism. He moved in uh, Assyrians and people from all over the place, different religions, and he, he put the Jews in with them and mixed them up. And after a while, you have syncretism. You destroy the religious purity, not ethnic purity. I don't believe in ethnic purity. Religious purity. And so, syncretism. And so, that, that was the Samaritans. And then, from Samaria, Samaria to the ends of the world. And that's us. If you were to look at this little room, where did we all come from? All over the planet. And then, so the gospel servants have been busy ministering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there is, there, there is repetition of that. Because the book of Acts is the record of the advance of the gospel, every single new section that we're looking at. And Peter went such and so, and Paul and Silas went such and so, and all of his fellow helpers, all these names that I butchered, they're, every new section, they're going to a new place. Look at the places that were looked at. They're in Ephesus. They go to Macedonia. They want to go to Syria. Then the Jews are going to kill them, so they go back to uh, Macedonia, and then he's off here in Troas. He's, he, you remember, he's trying to whittle... Uh, work his way down back to Jerusalem. But everywhere he goes, he's gospeling. As Christians, everywhere we go, we are to be the aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you all know that I love George Whitfield. Um, our, our hymns were, George beat me to the punch because I had written it. You have Francis of Assisi, 1225. Then you have Charles Wesley, mid-1700s. Mid then you have a Methodist. And then my last hymn is Isaac Watts, who I love. Early 1700s, and what you have here is all of these men are Christocentric. 
And I mentioned George Whitfield because George Whitfield would say something like this, which captures the heart, I think, of a Christian minister, certainly, and it should capture the heart of every Christian. He says, God forbid that I walk for 15 minutes with any man and not tell them of my Christ. That's what, that, that, yes, I understand there's a distinction in office bearer and non-office bearer. I understand that. But for all Christians, is that not our heart? To just, just give talk of Christ and to give away Christ and to witness for Christ, to live for Christ. That's what the guys are doing. And so then you see the advance of that. And when I say redundancy, it's a divine redundancy, which means God the Holy Spirit has inspired it And that means that this is written for our instruction. We need to hear, us, modern Christians, we need to hear regularly what we're looking at is the success of the Lord Jesus Christ, the success of the gospel. Now, the way that, depending on your eschatological views, we we think of success looking differently. I'm a millennial, my post-millennial brothers are more, I don't know what they are, but we, we differ. But, when you consider Christianity, biblical Christianity, no matter your eschatological position, we are a triumphalistic religion. We are a triumphalistic religion. Islam is a triumphalistic religion too, but it's a different view of triumphalism. We, have, we are a triumphalistic religion. Again, variously understood. Christ wins. Christ has won. We are super overcomers. The Apostle Paul coins a term, super overcomers in Christ Jesus. And so he comes the first time for salvation, he comes the second time for judgment, and then you will see it. You'll see this triumphalism. It will be tangible and palatable. As, as Christians, we need to progressively, repeatedly hear the gospel is going forth. In an anti, look at the world in which they live. Nero's on the throne. Now, I know we think I'm a very political critter, like everybody in this room is a political critter. Even if you tell me you're not, you are. We all are. And I look around and think, oi, ve ist mir. The gospel is triumphing. If I were to tell you back then, Nero's on the throne, if you were a Christian, you would think, we are toast. You're not toast. We're not. I don't know what... I mean, the choices that we always get seem to be schnook one versus schnook two. But that's another thing. We need to pray for them. But Christ triumphs. And so if you're like me, melancholy Mary, you need to hear regularly, Christ wins. The gospel's going. You can't stop it. You cannot stop Christ. And he just busts through these racial, cultural, national, what have you, divisions. And from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's, he's gathering in sinners to come to Christ for the purpose of building worshipers. We need to hear that, do we not? So this is one of the benefits of coming to church, a church that preaches the Bible, is you get to be encouraged, which is what hopefully we're doing. And so now, there is a redundancy in the book, but if, you, if you're keen to study the book, and hopefully I'm keen to study the book and then to exposit the book, you'll notice in each new section that there's something new that either God the Holy Spirit introduces through the penman Luke or God extrapolates or expands on. And this is no different, particularly in verses 7 through what, 12. So in 7 through 12, you have a snippet of one worship service. So in verses 1 through 6, the connection is something like this. In verses 1 through 6, you see a general itinerary of the gospel 
uh, servants in their labors. General itinerary, albeit it is general. So they're out gospeling in these various places. And And then seven to 12, the connection is you have a worship service. And so the truth that God the Holy Spirit is showing us is as the gospel goes forth, effectually received, which means when people believe it, they are sinners converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we become what now in Christ? We're saints. So the gospel is for the salvation of the lost, to, to change sinners into saints, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and then for the purpose of what? Creating worshipers. Gospel goes out, sinners are saved, saints are made. Progressively, I understand justification and sanctification is little I understand, but for the purpose of, of creating worshipers. That's the connection of section 1 through 6, gospel, conversion, sinners to saints, 7 to 12, now we have worshiping saints. That's the idea. So sometimes people say, I used to say when I was first converted, why didn't God just convert me in that truck in Boston to Jesus and zap me home? Take me to heaven. Why keep me here below? What's the answer? You have a wife and two kids. You have work to do. Now get to work. And then you have work to do. Go preach my word. You have work to do. I'm gathering in worshipers through your gospel work. For all of us, whether you're a truck driver, a carpet cleaner, a mom, a dad, or a preacher, the reason we're not in heaven is because God has work for us to do, gospel work, gospel work. He gives us the gospel talent, whether you're a mom, a dad, a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, gospel work for the purpose of calling sinners to Christ, building saints up in Christ, for worshiping, to create worshipers. That's what's going on here. So we have the, the divine redundancy of the gospel going forth, and the doctrine I want to basically extrapolate this morning is that um, the gospel creates as it goes forth effectually received worshipers now when i talk worship i suppose this is why we read from our confession of faith when i say the gospel is creating worship worshipers i mean acceptable worshipers and i know this is verboten in modern uh, culture we're never supposed to say something is right and something is wrong. Everything is all supposed to be equal except Bible Christianity. Everyone's free to say that that's wrong, right? Everyone is free to, 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 to spout off their nonsense. But the moment we try to spout off the truth, no, they shut us down. But be that as it may. When I say worship, I mean acceptable worship to the true and the living God. Everyone worships. Everyone worships. We have been created by God. This is part of being the image bearer of God. I know we lost it, the image in the narrow sense. The image of God is lost. In a a broad sense, we still are image bearers of God. That's another Bible study maybe, but I'll put that aside for, for now. All human beings worship. So you say, well, my cousin Bobby is an atheist. He doesn't worship. Yes, he does. Read Romans 1, 18 to the end. I forget verse 30 something. Even atheists worship. Who do they worship? Mm, preach it girl they worship themselves so everyone worships because God created human beings to worship we are worshiping creatures and after the fall in Adam's fall we sinned all now we worship we worship Romans 1 sticks and stones and all of that and so the atheist says I don't believe in God you're the mini God you believe the lie of the devil you're worshiping your brain your brawn your intellect whatever whatever your money you worship yourself so when we are talking the gospel-making worshipers 
we mean worshipers of the true and the living God, the God of the Bible. How many gods are there? Catechism question. How many gods are there, beloved? One. One. The God of the Bible is the, is the only God. And he's, so we're monotheists, but we're Trinitarian monotheists. It's a mystery, but it's, it's revealed in the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And, and the only way God says to us, come, or we can come into his presence and worship him and he receives us without hearing depart, how do we come? How do we come? Through the mediator. After the fall of Adam, no human being worships God acceptably but through a mediator. Now, most of y'all know I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and sometimes I feel really bad because I just I talk too much and I tell too much, particularly things on, uh, that I'm passionate about, and then people never come back again. And I feel really bad about that. I tell them the truth. There's no other mediators. It's only Christ. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's not St. Patrick. And then when your cousin's paying, praying to St. Patrick or the Virgin Mary, and I tell you no, in passion, the Bible says only Christ. You never come back again. And boy, howdy, it hurts my feelings. And I don't ever mean to drive people away with too much, and particularly too much content and too much passion, but it is something I'm very passionate about. And so you, you should pray for me, not that I would be faithless to the truth, but I would be wiser with the truth. But beloved, we only worship through the mediator Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel's all about. So you can't go through Sai Baba. You can't go through these. You can't go through, through, through St. Patrick or the Virgin Mary or St. Joseph. You can't go. It must be through the mediator Christ that he cleanses us and then he presents us as holy and acceptable. That's the only acceptable worship. And so it doesn't matter if, if someone tells you, no, no, my cousin Vinny worships such and such. He does, but he's not worshiping the God of the Bible. And if you would come to the God of the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from Christ's mediation, your worship will hear what? Depart from me. You're, you're unclean. Depart from me. So the gospel effectually received is the only conduit by which we are received, by which we are created as acceptable worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what, um, you remember, I, I mentioned the Samaritans. To say the Jews did not like the Samaritans is an understatement, because as I say, they were kind of the hodgepodge. They were the racially, and for them it was a racial business, and they were the religiously mixed up kind of uh, mongrel, and so the Jews really disdained them because of their, would I say that they, they held to some kind of racial purity, the Jews, and they disdained the Samaritans because they were racially impure? Yeah, I think I could probably say that. But if you look at the lineage of Jesus, to talk about the idea of racial purity is kind of farcical to me. You have a bunch of Gentile heathens in there. But who became believers? Jesus says this to the Samaritan woman. And this is informative. We're just going to look at this section as a general topical sermon on the subject of the gospel-creating worshipers and the kind of worshipers that Jesus is calling to himself. This was, a, this was a thumb in the eye of a Jew who said, the only people that God accepts as worship are religiously, racially pure Jews, and the Gentiles are dogs. And Jesus comes along and says, you want to see an acceptable worshiper? 
You remember John 4? I'll read it. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, now this is a, a discussion on worship. The gospel is for creating worshipers. Our fathers, the Samaritan woman says, worshipped in this mountain. This is the two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Here's the fight over where you're going to worship. <laughs> Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerus- Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not the place where you worship that's important. You, now listen to what he says. Jesus would be kicked out of most churches. He would be fired from preaching in most seminaries if he said this. You worship what you do not know. You're not supposed to say that. And Jesus said it. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming when the true worshipers, that's acceptable worship, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for such People, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The, the underlying Greek word that he uses over and over and over again for worship is proskuneo. It's a compound word, pros, to, forward, down, towards. Kuneo means to kiss. And the notion is, Hindus do this. This was just done to me. My wife's um, relatives came, and since I'm the ov- older one, I forget the, the suffix they use, is a G. G is respect. They bow down and touch your feet. And, and so since, and the, the game that's supposed to be played with Hindus is you go to bow down, and the person is supposed to, the older one is supposed to push you away. You, you, if you've ever said, no, 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 please don't, no, no, please don't. And then, and then for me as the, the silly American, I'm like, okay, you want to touch my feet? Have a field day, touch my feet. But, but that's the idea of this, proskuneo. Like you've seen people go when they worship in a mosque. How do they worship? They worship, they're on all fours, on their face. That's proskuneo, actually. That's, bowed, that's what this word is. You are, you are on your face. You're bowing down. You're kissing the ground, as it were, or kissing the hand. It's adoration. It's just... It's, it's, it's a willing subordination to a superior, but in a good sense. That's this notion of a humbling of oneself, adoring God in Christ, loving God in Christ, serving God in Christ. Remember the, the, the worship that Christ received and extolled, and it's written in the Bible, that says, this woman worships, and you, Simon, do not know what worship is all about, you Pharisee. How did she worship Jesus? Proskuneo, literally proskuneo. She got down and did what to his feet? She wept on his feet. She washed his feet with her, with her tears, and she wiped his feet with her what? With her hair. The glory of a woman is her hair. What woman in their right mind would wash Christ's feet and kiss Christ's feet as it were? We all would. If Christ were here, wouldn't our desire would be proskuneo? Down before him. Nothing is too good for our Christ. Nothing. It's just utter devotion. The gospel is for that. Everything else is chaff. 
our, our good names, our, our positions. Look at the picture of the heart of Christ. Our brother George is doing the heart of Christ in meekness in Sunday school. The heart of Christ is Luke 15. Is the father is told by his son, younger son, I wish you were dead, give me the money. And off the son goes and he lives like a pig in the pig pen and he wants the father dead, he just wants the father's money and you would think most fathers will do what? Send me a postcard from Sheol. You're, ne- you're, not, you're not my son, you're disowned. But that's not the heart of our Christ. The heart of our Christ does what? To, he's looking out. Looking for the son. And the son comes back and he goes, to, he has his rehearsed thing saying, Father, I'm not even fit to be your son. He doesn't even get it out of his mouth. The father runs. Grown men in this culture didn't run. It was a sign of humiliation. He runs. It's a, it's a picture of, of, of the heart of Christ. And for the respondee to the gospel of Jesus is what? We fall at his feet. Well, I have a big name. I'm a doctor. I'm a this. I'm a that. Before Jesus, the gospel creates in us just a, a heart of proskeneo. We love God in Christ, and everything is devoted to him. Everything is a token of our, of our worship. That, 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 that's what's going on. And so th- th- this sermon is something of a counterpart to last week's sermon, which was kind of, I'm passionate about everything. I love the Bible. I, I, love, I love preparing sermons. I love studying. Thank you very much for supporting me so I get to do what I love. I love studying the Bible. And even the harder passages, I love it. I don't always love delivering it, but I love it. I love learning about the heart of our God, the mind of our God. Last week's sermon was essentially the counterpart of this week's sermon. Last week's sermon says the gospel rejected men rage. And the gospel received men what? We worship. Unbelief rages at Christ. What does belief do at Christ? What do you do? What do you do? You rejoice. You worship I have a little practice. I'm a, I am a box checker. I don't know if a box checker is the right thing. I'm very methodical in my life. I make lists that have li- I know you're not supposed to do it because it adds to your anxiety, but I do it just to add to my anxiety. And then I make lists. And so my method every day is the same. I come into work super duper early and I worship first thing in the morning. And then on Sunday, I have a particular style or method of worship. And I listen to a lot of music. And don't tell anybody, but I listen to various kinds of music. I listen to bluegrass, gospel music, but I love to listen to um, a certain other kind of genre of, of worship. And the, the, the O'Neill twins, you can, on the Lord's Day, you could do this. The O'Neill twins, God chose me. He chose me. O'Neill twins. They're both dead in heaven now. It is glorious. It is glorious. Or God dropped the, Jesus dropped the charges. My wife doesn't like this one. I love it. It's just glorious. That's what the gospel does. The gospel creates in us a desire to adore God in Christ. That's what it means to be effectually received. Now, I want to say just a few words, and I'm going to skim over it. It will be in my notes. If you want my notes, give me your, text me your email, and you'll get them. Every Tuesday, I send out my manuscripts. 
but I just want to say a very brief thing because our, te- our text does it. Look at verse, uh, what is it? Look at verse 1. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, it actually refers back to what just happened in um, Acts 19, obviously. So the gospel goes out, the people are rejecting it, great is Artemis, the heathen, I, I mean, I, I'm using it technically as a literal, they're, they're literal pagans. And they hate to hear the gospel because it indicts them as wrong, and so a riot occurs. And right after the riot is occurring, the civil magistrates calm it down. I, I, I have a whole little section here on the wisdom of these unbelieving civil magistrates. For those of us who were not raised in Reformed churches, for me, and we come to the Reformed faith, which we love, we, we think it's biblical, we hear the doctrine of total depravity. And sometimes people misunderstand total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as wicked as, as you can be. It means every, every aspect of your faculty has been affected by the fall. It doesn't mean that you can't do civil good. Here these unbelievers, notwithstanding the folly of unbelief, they do civil good. They restrain a, uh, a, um, a, a, a riot. Um, for the most part, I would argue, probably most of our civil leaders are unbelievers. It doesn't mean they can't do civil good. They can't do good unto God, but they can do civil good. So, so total depravity doesn't mean the absence of any intellectual or emotional or volitional usefulness. It just means that there is no faculty left apart by God that is Godward or Christward unless God the Holy Spirit works. So in the government of the Lord God, God governs even these unbelieving magistrates in order to do what? To stop the riot in Ephesus, true, but God is governing everything for what purpose right now? What is God, the government of God, what's going on right now? Why, why is he governing what he's governing? For, for what body? Not for the unbeliever, for the glory of God in Christ, true, but for the good of the church. The good of the church. You hear people say, I wish we could kill all the Christians or get rid of the Christian church. The moment the last Christian is dead in glory, zip-zow. Someone asked me the other day, do you believe in the rapture? I do believe in the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 5, not the dispensational version, the kind that everybody believed before the dispensationalism in 1820, that when Jesus comes back, we're out of here. And then the eternal estate. So when someone says, well, I you know, wish no more church, God is governing all of this for the good of the church. So he preserves his gospel serve. He preserves the gospel. He preserves, he, he quelches the riot to preserve the, the gospel servants. Sometimes in God's providence, he permits his gospel servants, Christians, to suffer and to be struck. And I would argue this, that um, I believe this, you, you may differ. When God, in his infinite wisdom, permits the Christian to suffer or go through afflictive providence, and I'm going to be careful, sanctified affliction, sanctified suffering, sanctified trials, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit, I believe are the primary means by which God in Christ grows us from a notional or intellectual knowledge of Christ to a practical and experimental knowledge of Christ. Does that make sense? In other words, sufferings are... Read quotes by Martin Lloyd-Jones on suffering. He says sanctified suffering. Again, 
that we receive it in Christ. We receive it with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Because we have the flesh, we can, we, we can respond wrongly to, sancti- to, to afflictions. Sanctified afflictions drive us off of our sin. They drive us off of the world. And who do they drive us to? Jesus. We live on Christ. And then we become better gospel servants. We're, we're made more fit for heaven. But then other times God restrains the unbeliever and he preserves the life of the believer. And as I've said, one of the reasons he preserves the life of the Apostle Paul is Paul, Paul, God still has more work for the Apostle Paul. The reason that you and me this morning are alive, beloved, as Christians, God has more work for you. That's why. That's why. Gospel work. To live to the glory of Christ. To worship God in Christ. Maybe if you... Well, I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a parent, I'm a, or I'm a grandparent. Then to, to, to live for the glory of Christ, for you, help your grandkids, or help your kids, or help someone else's kids, or help the neighbor in Christ. And that's what's going on. And so, Paul, we have this itinerary of him traveling around with these various folks, gospeling, and for the purpose of creating these worshipers. And what I find, and again, I'm just skimming through some of this, because we're looking at the notion of the gospel creating worshipers, but it's a multinational, multi ethnic, multicultural um, band of worshipers. And I probably am not supposed to say a bunch of that because some of this is, I guess, we can become the Hatfolds and the McCoys. When you talk about multiculturalism in the way that we ordinarily talk about it in modern talk, boy, howdy, it can be like the Hatfolds and McCoys, but I don't mean it like that. I mean, when you look at the list of guys, look at the list of guys that are gospeling, that, that, that there are these Jesus worshipers. Paul's a, a Jew. He's traveling around with Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica, Gaius of Derby. Timothy is from where? Lystra. And then Tychicus and Trompius of Asia. This is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational national band of what? Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Worshippers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is Aristarchus means uh, chief ruler, main ruler. And, and Secundus means number two. There's a place in the book of Romans where you have, oh, I forget it. Quartus is four. I forget the other one for three. And there are two other guys named three and four. This is, these are slaves. Slave number two, they're given the name two. You're two. You're, you're three. You're Quartus. You're four. They're walking around, living for Christ, worshiping Christ with the chief ruler. This is the thing that the gospel can do that nothing else can do. It can take black, white, rich, poor, and it can even take Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever. J.C. Ryle, my favorite, my favorite uh, experimental theologian, says his favorite political maxim is Christ is king. Christ is king. The, only the gospel can do this. You could have like a Gentile and a Jew worshiping. Yeah, because they're not Gentiles and Jews anymore. They're one new. You can have a slave and the chief ruler worshiping. To, yeah, because they're not slaves and chief rulers anymore. What are they? They're brothers. <laughs> they're brothers. In Christ, that's what the gospel can do. So you look at these people and you're like, none of them should have been hanging around with one another. But the gospel brings them together. They're one body in Christ. And now with this snippet 
of this worship where we have in 7 through 12, it's just one, it's, I will say this. In 7 through 12, we have a snippet of the gospel creating worshipers, and now we have a worship service. And this worship service is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm going to say that again because it's important. This gospel, this, this worship service in 7 through 12 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive means it just describes what's going on in this one particular worship in one instance among particular Christians. Prescriptive would mean it's prescribing a rule for all Christians, for all acceptable worship, for all times. If it were prescriptive, what would this passage teach then, if it were? We could only have worship on a thir- three, at least a building with three stories, and we'd have to worship on the third story. We'd only have to have worship late at night, and I would have to preach like four-hour sermons. Wait a minute, this isn't really that bad. And so we'd, I'd have to preach all night long, and we, we couldn't have this kind of lighting. We'd have to have oil lamps. That's prescriptive. So what that means is, being descriptive, there's greater liberty of worship in the New Testament epoch than the Old Testament epoch. And what do I mean by that? When Christ has come, the fullness of the Bible has come. There's a greater effusion, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There's a greater spirituality and simplicity to our worship. There's no counterpart, one-to-one counterpart of the book of Leviticus from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's no worship manual like one-to-one Leviticus to New Testament. I know our dispensationalist friends, I used to be dispensationalist. Let's put that aside. We have greater simplicity, greater spirituality. We're not tied to a prescriptive form. The elements of worship are dictated by the Bible. You have word, sacrament, praying, and praising. That's it. That's it. So if you have a little bitty... This used to be, this building used to be... It started off, I think it was that building out there. And then I think the... I don't... Ron can tell me later whether they built this one or that one. This used to be like a Methodist... I don't know what it was, like a little daycare. And if you take our church and look at, say, like a Catholic cathedral... Does it look different? Yeah, we look like a we look like a, a shoebox with brick veneer. But it's not the place. So you can you have worship in a three story building? Yes. Um, when my I sent our daughter to uh, Haiti, and she worshipped in Haiti. You're not. This is the Taj Mahal. This is the Taj Mahal compared to where they worshipped in Haiti. Where did they worship in Haiti? And a little thing outside, like not even a hut, and literally sitting on a on a on a on a log. That's where they were. Is that worship? That's worship. So we're not tied to a particular form. There's greater spirituality. That's the spiritual worshiping God in spirit and truth. But we are taught a couple things about just the, we have a couple of elements of worship. First, we're told, remember, this is corporate worship. We, we should worship every day that we're alive, privately and in our families. And then this is corporate worship. We're told the time that they gathered together was on what day of the week? The first day of the week. That's Sunday. Now, the Sabbath, Christian Sabbath, used to be a hobby horse of mine. I I chafed myself a lot because I used to ride that around 24 hours a day. I was actually super Sabbatarian. And then God, the Holy Spirit, calmed me down. So my practice was to start on Tuesday night and not finish up, uh, Saturday night and not finish up till Monday morning. I was a loon. And so I, I just swung the wrong way. Mea culpa. But the Bible records for us when the Christian church meets to worship God and Christ. And it's on the first day of the week. 
Maybe we could have a, a fun Bible study someday when God the Holy Spirit moves it from the old Friday, Saturday, Jewish Sabbath to, to the Sunday Sabbath. I think that would be a fun study. But the only thing I want to say here for brevity's sake is clearly here they're, they're worshiping God in Christ on what day? First day. And in, in, on Acts chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Corinthians met for worship on what day? First day, Sunday. The Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, I think verse 10. He is in the Spirit on what day? The Lord's Day. So here they are, and they're gathered together. So they're meeting for worship on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the first day of the week, to to commemorate Christ rising from the dead for, for us. And we have the notion of this corporate worship is a gathering together. Now, I always feel bad when I say these things which are, Maybe in, maybe in the divine imperative, you all must, we all must, because I'm preaching to the choir. So there's the divine indicative, what God in Christ has done, and then imperative, what we do. The Bible says that we are to separate ourselves from other things on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and we're to do what? We're to gather together. So this worship service is Christians who are ekaleo, called out of sin, called to Christ, synagogue gather together to God in Christ, and gather to one another. So if someone says, show me in the Bible where I'm required to like get away from playing golf on Sunday and go to church, hit right there. You're, you're reading it. You're, you're reading it. And then go read Hebrews chapter uh, 10. Do not forsake the what? The gathering together. So for, for anything to occur, you have to have the requisite measure of time. And so God says, I want you to worship me as a church, gathered together, one body, one flock, one people, one household, one family. And we say back to God, we need time. He says, I gave you time. One whole commandment, the fourth. You have one whole day and you could worship me. And so we have the early church. They're meeting on the first day. They're gathering together. I will say this just by way of application. What we do on the Lord's day reveals who we are religiously. I'm not picking on you. What we do on the Lord's Day reveals who we are, what we are religiously. Do we gather to, and if you're in traction or you're, you're, you're hooked to an IV bottle and you're not in church on Sunday, please, don't. Ah, my cousin Bobby's in, you know, whatever. He can't come to church. If you can't come to church because you're on an IV bottle, you get a pass. But if you're playing golf while you're swimming at the beach, and eating at Sonny's Barbecue. Where you spend your Sabbath, what you spend your Sabbath, indicates who you are religiously. And now they're, they're here with all of these various things. They're, they're worshiping God in Christ. I will say this as well by way of application. Who and what you worship, because everybody worships, will reveal who and what you are religiously. Who and what you worship reveals what you are, who you are religiously. If you worship Allah, what are you? You're a Muslim. If you worship Ganesh, which is half elephant, half man, what are you? You're a Hindu. If you worship Jesus, what are you? You're a Christian. And who you worship with indicates who you are. If you go to a church, so-called, and they teach you, hey, it's not blood sacrifice, Jesus. It's not blood atonement, Jesus. Oh, no. Oh, no. There's plenty of ways to heaven. What are you? 
you're a formalist. You're a nominal Christian. A nominal Christian means what? In name only. So if you're worshiping around other people that deny Christ is the way and the truth, and that's who you worship with, that's who you are religiously. Does that make sense? So birds of a feather flock together. If you're going to a so-called church that says, oh, we just say, anybody goes, and you could go through Sai Baba and all these, you could just buy your good works, everybody goes. Well, that's who you are, ordinarily. So they're worshiping on the Lord's Day, and then we have various elements going on. Again, descriptive. This is not prescribing every single time you get together, they're practicing the Lord's Supper. There's a big argument for that. I'm not going to deal with that. So they're receiving the Lord's Supper, which one, one uh, commentator says the sacraments are a dramatization of the gospel, which I don't like the word drama, but I do understand what he says. He means it's the gospel in type and shadow. That's true. And so you have the administration of the sacraments in worship. And then there are two sacraments for the New Testament church, not like the church of my youth. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, the way that the sacraments, and I'm just going to get off this because I'm going way too long, should be administered is under the guidance of the Bible. So the sacraments are only rightly administered as they're done according to the Bible. So no making the sign of the cross, no genuflecting, no oil in the water for baptism, no salt in the water for baptism, the things of the church of my youth, no adoration of the host, but only as administered according to the word. And then what you see finally as an element of worship is the ministry of the word. And I will say this, I kind of do like this. It looks like from the text that the preponderance of the time taken up in the worship is the ministry of the word. And this is a Protestant principle, that the word of God in worship is preeminent, the, 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 the sacraments are subordinate to, to the word as applied by the, the word, but it's the word. The word has to be preached, the word has to be expounded, the word has to be received. And then finally, in the worship, we have this unique thing about the boy falls asleep, and then he dies. Now, I'm, I, as a minister, does it offend me if people fall asleep in service? No, it, it actually doesn't. Now, it does some ministers. There are some ministers that get super-duper mad. I am not one of them. Prior, I still do, I work a ton of hours. Prior to being a minister, I've always worked a ton of hours, like 70 hours a week. So I'm not allergic to work. And I'm very sympathetic with people that work hard in the home and out of the home. So if you're doing one of these, I think you've had a hard week. And sometimes people are on medication and it makes us tired. I'm not even being silly. At the, is, it, is it natural that this boy fell asleep? He's preaching all night. It's midnight. Nighttime is nighttime. Nighttime is the sleep time. And he falls asleep. This is not here to condemn the boy. The miracle is here. Why? Connected to worship. Paul lays on top of him just what, like, what two kind of prophets? Elijah and Elisha. So this miracle is here as an exclamation mark, not to condemn the boy, but to tell these people that Jesus Christ walks among the lampstand of his worshipers. That's what it's here for. Christ is with us. And I'll end there. I'll end there. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.